Welcome to the Pendulum Land Podcast. Our podcast is designed for people interested in the right-of-way industry, in eminent domain, or the Uniform Relocation Act, or anyone who just enjoys spirited discussion of popular culture. Today's podcast is sponsored by Pendulum Land Services, a full-service right-of-way acquisition firm managed by industry experts who are dedicated to the integrity of the right-of-way process. Visit them at PendulumLand.com. With us today is our regular crew, Kristen Bennett from the great state of Texas. Aloha, Kristen. Aloha, Dave. And Ross Green, an expert eminent domain attorney from the Commonwealth of Virginia. Aloha, Ross. I'm not saying aloha, Dave. And I'm Dave Arnold, your host and authority on the best music and movies released between 1975 and 1995. So let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, today... For the first time in the history of the Pendulum Land podcast, we have a special celebrity guest joining us on our show. I can't believe that we were able to get him to take his time and join us for a while today. I have goosebumps just getting ready to introduce this guy that we have on the line. Ladies and gentlemen, the talented, the extraordinary, the magnificent, the man with the plan, bottle in hand at the microphone stand. Yo, homeboy, what you drinking, man? The one and only Rob Thomas. With that into how could I, you know, first of all, your check's in the mail. Thank you very much for that introduction. Wait, wait. Aloha, Rob. Aloha to you. <laughs> now, Rob, Rob, you probably don't know this, but I have seen you in concert not once but twice but each time you were on a solo tour, you were not with Matchbox 20. Dave, oh, Dave, did your mother uh, drop yeah, you on your head as a child? This is not that Rob Thomas. What? This, that Rob Thomas wishes he were this Rob Thomas. This Rob Thomas is, in fact, also a rock star. But he's a rock star of eminent domain. What? Yeah. You missed that. Ross, why don't you do a proper introduction of our celebrity guest? Okay. Who we have with us today is... Rob Thomas, he's a partner at the law firm of Damon Key, Long, Kupchak, and Hastert. He's a rock star in eminent domain. He runs InverseCondemnation.com, uh, perhaps the best plaintiff side or landowner side uh, blog on the internet about uh, the issues we discuss here. And he is also the inaugural Joseph T. Waldo Professor of Property Rights Law at William & Mary Law School. He's the Hawaii member of the Owners' Council of America, which is the national uh, network, you know, similar to the Illuminati or whatever, <laughs> what? as far as uh, Landowners' Where, Council uh, in going? the United States. He's a frequent speaker on land use and eminent domain issues in Hawaii and California. He publishes regularly in this area, and we're very glad to have him with us here today uh, to talk about eminent domain and land use issues with us. So the, so the 10 minutes I spent reading the Wikipedia biography of Rob Thomas the singer is 10 minutes I won't get back again in my life. You're acting like you actually had to read that, because I know you love Rob Thomas and Matchbox 20, so I know you didn't even bother to read. You were just like, yeah, I love Rob Thomas so much. Yeah, I do celebrate their whole library, but let's get back to our, our celebrity guest, the real rock star, Rob Thomas. We're happy to have you with us here today. I know, Rob, you, I guess you're having some uh, troubles with the California wildfire situation. Yeah, well, thanks. I, I often get mistaken. That's my, he's my secret identity, you know, my superstar or my uh, superhero identity is that of a singer with Matchbox 20. Um, and I wasn't smart enough to change my name. Um, you know, it kind of gives that one away. But thank you for that kind introduction, boy. And first of all, congratulations to you for 
diving into the podcast field. I got a little questions for you at some point in this that I hope you can, you know, fill in, let me know how this came to be, because I think it's fantastic that you're jumping in um, to producing this and uh, releasing it on a regular basis. So congratulations, first of all. Thank you, Robin. I don't mind taking that one right now. All credit goes to me, Dave Arnold. It was my idea. And, <laughs> okay. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you, 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 the humility that comes with that, too. Right. <laughs> right. People want confident lawyers, Rob, and so that's what I'm doing. That's his excuse. Okay. You, you know, lawyers generally, right? We don't have a – that's not the, usually our weak suit is, is our humility. Right, right. Um, <laughs> strong suit is hubris. Hubris, not humility. Exactly. Rob, how did you uh, get into being an eminent domain attorney and doing the work that you do? You know, like a lot of you – know, it wasn't my lifelong dream. There's very few of us, I think, uh, where it is, where, uh, you know, as I tell my students who are, some of whom are struggling, I said, don't worry if, you know, this all doesn't come to you. Uh, guess what my worst grade in law school was? It was property. Which class did I take and think? I learned a lot, but I just somehow didn't perform. Of course, that was property, and I never took another property class in law school. Right. And so, of course, what do I end up, you know, naturally uh, what do I end up practicing? Back, you know, back to your question: How did I get into? How did I get into eminent domain? Totally by accident. I thought I was going to be first. I thought I might be a, a criminal defense lawyer, um, but I started working for a, a firm in the, on the civil side. And the first case that got handed to me uh, when I was not even quite a lawyer yet, law clerk, um, was this partner said was this little three-hour research exercise um, on a on a regulatory takings case in Honolulu that somehow he he just settled the last vestiges of that case probably five years ago. Wow. And I was handed the file and I think it was 1986. Wow. So, you know, this little three-hour research project turned into, I at last count, I think it was two trips to the Hawaii Supreme Court, one failed trip to the U.S. Supreme Court, couple of visits to the Ninth Circuit and a trial, trial in federal district court. Um, and, you know, and then the, the sort of the spinoff uh, from that. And, uh, you know, it lasted. We looked at each other when it settled. Finally, the last pieces of it settled a few years ago. Uh, and so now what are we going to do? You know, we're, we've grown old on this case. But that, that case kind of grabbed onto me, the regulatory takings particularly, um, were, uh, you know, are and were somewhat metaphysical questions, you know, when, when does something you still own, when is it still, when has it been taken from you? And I just, uh, I really got into it and I taught myself uh, during the course of that case and others taught myself this stuff and really developed sort of a love for both the practical and the theoretical side of it. Well, you know, Rob, we have an unofficial rule on this podcast. We don't call it taking yeah. because Kristen, what do we do? We buy it. We buy it. We buy it. But but Rob, I know <clears throat> I know you you um, your sandbox is on the other side of ours most of the time. Yeah, you know I'm sorry. You know who's which of us is you know from the dark side and which from the you know <laughs> the, the light side. I we'll, we'll have we can have that friendly debate. Well, uh, t- today but, you know, today we're wearing we can't the white have hat. One without the other, right? <laughs> well, we know which one you are, Rob, given our Twitter discourse yeah. and the giant V that sits by your name on uh, your blog and on Twitter. And there, there, Lord Vader. Uh, 
<laughs> now, one of the things that, you know, I, I don't know uh, about you guys, but one of the things I actually really like about this practice area is that it, it you know, it's not overly large in terms of the number of people who, and the different professionals who practice in it. So you kind of know the people on the other side and you, and you get used to them. And there's a lot of this kind of friendly competition that, well, it can turn unfriendly, you know, but unfriendly but professional. So I have a fairly good relationship with all the folks uh, on the other side. That's, that's one of the things I really like about it. It's such a small pond that, you know, flashing too much doesn't get you very far. So, Rob, I know one of the hot topics that everybody wants to, to hear about, I think, is and that you're deeply involved in and have been posting a lot about is how COVID-19 closures can be a takings case. I know the first time I saw one of these uh, posted, saw the the case details, I think my comment was, well, that's going to go over like a lead balloon, and that one didn't succeed, but it sounds like as this process pandemic doesn't stop, the, the cases don't stop, and it sounds like some people have found ways to get there one way or another on their claims, potentially, although it sounds like most of them are still... Uh, not being successful. So what have you got on, what do you think about that? You know, on a good, you know, on a non-COVID day, as you know, a regulatory takings case where uh, a property owner, a business owner, sues the government, usually for compensation, uh, when there hasn't been an exercise of eminent domain, but some other form of government regulatory power. You know, on a non-COVID day, those, play, those cases are pretty tough, right? I mean, the, the courts, both uh, the U.S. Supreme Court and then our various state courts, have set the bar pretty high and give the government a lot of leeway in the way that it regulates uh, uses of property or regulates businesses or, or whatever it might be uh, before it becomes goes too far, as Justice Holmes taught us, um, and becomes an act that the government that that is the effective equivalent of eminent domain, and that, and that we, the people through the government, have to pay for, you know, pay compensation for. So on a on a good non-COVID day, those cases are hard. But then you throw in sort of the, the COVID, what I you know what I would call the COVID mix, and these emergency orders, uh, whether they're truly emergencies or not, depending on who you're talking to. Um, where they're doing all sorts of things from ordering, you know, businesses to shut down for a temporary period or an indefinite period, or they're differentiating between various types of businesses that can stay open or stay closed. Uh, you throw in that emergency flavor, and courts uh, historically have become been very reluctant to step in in the middle of the emergency and second-guess uh, the elected branches of government on how they're reacting uh, in real time to these, uh, to, you know, to these things, whether they have to, you know, how closely tailored do they have to do these regulations, um, is, is in the ballpark good enough, what about the science? Um, and so, you know, there's been a number of challenges, I think at least 20 to 25 sort of at last around the country in various uh, federal and state courts on taking, claiming that these are taking, seeking either to stop uh, the supposedly unconstitutional uh, emergency orders 
uh, seeking some kind of uh, other relief from them, like just compensation, saying if I have to shut down uh, during a pandemic for the public good, well, then you know I shouldn't have to pay for that alone. That's something that all of us should pay for. Um, and as far as I can tell, not a single one has been successful so far, um, at least on takings grounds. There have been a few that have been successful on other constitutional basis, where I think at least one court has said that uh, you can't say, you know, your grocery store can stay open, but your church cannot, when there's really no, you know, in terms of the science, there's not much of a distinction there, and people have a right to go worship as much as they have a right to go buy food. Rob, <clears throat> Rob, this is something I cannot get my head around, okay? And, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and as you probably know, uh, Ross and I exclusively represent condemning authorities. We don't represent any landowners ever. And I can't get my head around this concept that if I own a piece of property and I own it for purposes of producing the purpose of producing income, and I have a tenant who stops paying and the government forbids me from evicting that tenant who's not paying and replacing him or her with somebody who will, that the government's not taking my property. It's at least taking some stick in that bundle of rights. I can't get my head around that. And, and, I, and I'm a, and I'm a um, condemning authority side guy. Yeah, well, you know, you know, Luke, I am your father, you know? Oh, boy. <laughs> welcome, Here we welcome. go. You know, join me. Join me and we can rule the galaxy. You know, Nerd alert. I mean, you know, we'll join forces. <laughs> you know, well, right? I, I, um, I just, I, I can't, I can't get my head around this idea. And I mean, I'm sympathetic and I understand that the government could adopt a policy that says you can't evict, but then, then the government needs to compensate that landowner for forcing him to keep a non-paying tenant in his property. I think the, the principles are there, and I think the principles on this one are, are with the landlord, saying how come effectively you've turned what was private housing into public housing. You're telling me, government or court, that uh, I have to keep people housed in my property because we're in the middle of a pandemic and that I have to do it for free. You know, I have to continue to pay property taxes, business licenses, uh, you know, other things that I'm supposed to do, or more, you know, service the mortgage, whatever it might be. What gives? Yeah. Um, and the courts have responded uh, in a couple of ways, based upon a U.S. Supreme Court case out of California that comes up by, like all bad U.S. Supreme Court cases, or maybe Ooh. from your perspective, they're good. <laughs> but, you know, all, all uh, land, a lot of things like a lot of landowner unfavorable cases uh, that end up uh, in, in the U.S. Supreme Court coming up, what I would say is the wrong way, unfortunately, come out of California. Uh, but that dealt with um, of a moratorium. You know, and, and in that case, I think it was uh, when they added up, it was about seven years total restriction on development within the Lake Tahoe basement for what I think when they added up all the temporary moratorium, it was something like seven years. Um, and that was, you know, kind of a complete loss of use during that year. And the property owner uh, sued for a taking and said, mm-hmm. hey, you know, that's been a total wipeout of my use for that seven years. Pay up temporary takings. Uh, are not exempt from the requirement to pay just compensation. And the court came down and said, I think even Chief Justice Roberts argued on behalf of the agency on that one when he was in private practice. But uh, the, the 
court came down and said, well, you know, moratorium, as long as not permanent prohibition, uh, moratorium, they're indefinite, they're temporary. And as long as they're not completely indefinite or terribly long, um, those won't be a taking because the theory is that when the moratorium is eventually lifted, that the value and use, the uses lost by the property owner and the value for that time period in which it was clouded by the moratorium um, will rebound. I, I, you know, I, I, I've always wondered where that came from other than sort of the court's intuition, because as far as I could tell, there was never anything in the record, you know, like testimony to actually show that would be true, that the, that the loss of any value during those seven years would rebound in terms of the market uh, once the moratorium was lifted. But that's kind of the theory, because you'll notice, and I've always thought this, this uh, you know, where the line on this one was, in terms, at least in terms of current doctrine, was uh, the nature of the moratorium. And in most of these cases, I think the, the, the lawyer who's drafting these moratoriums for either the courts or for, the you know, usually in these cases it's the local municipality or maybe even the state has read that case uh, because it's not a ban on, on it's not a rent holiday so no, or it's not a rent uh, a waiver. So in other words, they're not saying, look, you just you can't you have to house these folks and you the, the rent that accrued during that period you can never recover. Whenever these these prohibitions are lifted, I think the theory is that at that point the tenant becomes liable for the full amount of the rent, including the you know the the, the COVID period. Let's say, technically speaking, the landlord can then seek to recover that, and if they don't pay it back within a certain amount of time, begin eviction proceedings. Well, well okay, there's okay. been a couple of no. I was going to say that. Okay, that's a good point. That's a really good point, and I hadn't considered that, but. Uh, it seems to me what's good for the goose, as they say, <clears throat> if there's going to be a moratorium on the collection of rent, there seems to be a logical uh, argument that there should be a moratorium on the collection of taxes on that property. And as you well know, the, the government wants their money. Uh, and, and, and you know, trust me, a lot of that was proposed at the time these were first coming out because in many states, uh, you know, the pandemic started right about the time that either your first or your second installment of your property taxes were due. And so some folks asked, well, if you're going to put a, a moratorium on me collecting rental income, you know, how about uh, you, you know, local government taking a little bit of the load off of me and delaying my, my uh, property tax payments? I don't know of a single jurisdiction, you know, surprise, surprise, but I'm not sure. I can't, I don't remember a single jurisdiction saying that, that yes, we're going to, you can, you know, submit your property taxes and this is all over free of penalty. Although I know in some of them, uh, one of mine included, they said, well, if you don't pay on time, you know, that's okay. You can, you can tell us that you've got a problem because, you know, you're of COVID and other things or eviction moratorium, and we'll consider a waiver, but we're not going to guarantee one. So, you you know, you pay your money, you take your chances. Maybe we'll grant you a waiver for the for the uh, late fees and the interest, but maybe we won't. And I don't know of any landowners who took advantage of that. So, no, you know, it's, it is it is a case of goose not being good for the gander on the they have operated on the same theory that eventually uh, you should be able to collect the, the rent 
whether as a realistic matter or rather as a practical matter that is, is realistic or not, um, with so many folks being laid off or put on reduced hours or whatnot, is that kind of an illusory remedy? So I haven't seen that raised yet, but I expect it to. But that's been sort of the theory. And there's been only a handful, if even, and, and last I checked, it was town near Cornell University. Ithaca, is that, am I getting that right? Ithaca, New York? They were proposing a total rent holiday, which is you don't have to pay forgiveness, essentially, that the government comes in and wipes out the debt. I think that's the strongest case for a take. I mean, at that point, I think uh, the idea that, that you might be able, the theoretical possibility that you might be able to recover past due rent and the premises is is out the window. And to me, those would be clearly taken. And so the longer this thing goes on, the more you hear about those type of proposals. But I'm betting that the same folks who drafted the moratorium and, and the eviction moratorium in the first place probably understand that if they go that far, that's something that the courts are going to step in and say, look, at that point, you're just you know forcing private landowners to become the providers of public housing well, you know, I, I, for people in, in dire COVID situations. So we all should have to pay for that. I will tell you this, that that would inspire me to switch sides under those circumstances. <laughs> then I'm going to, I'm going to link arms with you, Rob, and I'm going to be a landowner lawyer if, and when that happens. All right. Hey, all Ro- right. Rob, well, I have a question we, for you we, as, as the only no. non attorney on this podcast today. Um, from what I understand, this whole moratorium is from, it was federally regulated under the CARES Act, right? And I live in Texas, and I've seen some articles lately. I guess that expired late July, like July 24th or 25th. And so there's there's mm-hmm. been some articles um, lately in the paper saying that Texas is going to, they're, they're going forward with eviction proceedings at this point because of that, the expiration of that CARES Act. So are, state by state, are there still states that have a moratorium that's state regulated? It's a mix of receive. I, I forget what the, the test was, but if you were had a federal mortgage or other things, uh, you were subject, of course, to federal rules, and that was put in by the CARES Act, and that has, I, I think you're right, it has expired. Most of these that I've seen, however, have been for sort of the general class of landowners, regardless of which or notwithstanding any kind of federal limitation on, on their, their ability to rent property and whatnot. Uh, most of these things have been coming out of state and local government based solely on state or local law, or even in some cases the courts themselves issuing orders oh, okay. uh, saying technically you still have a claim. You can bring a claim. You can institute one. So here, for example, in California, you can file an eminent or a, I'm sorry, a, an eviction or, or an unlawful detainer action in state court. We're just not going to – the court. here's a policy coming out from the, the Supreme Court that says we're just not going to process it for a while. Right. You now, know, while we're in COVID, we're just, we're just going to slow walk it. I have a question uh, so there on you that You have a claim, point, but we're just not going to do anything about it. Sure. Yeah. I had, a, I had a thought on that point, Rob. I've been wondering about that because at least in Virginia, that's um, – what we currently have is a judicial mm-hmm. emergency order that says that mm-hmm. you can't proceed – well, at least that you couldn't proceed with uh, eviction proceedings. And I'm not sure how exi- like that that is the same thing. Particularly, this a lot of this discussion is directed at housing, but you also have mm-hmm. 
the need for commercial evictions. And at least in most commercial work, you don't necessarily go through a judicial proceeding for an eviction. They just don't pay their rent. And given that there aren't the same statutory protections for commercial uh, lessees as there are for residential, they just get locked out and you just move their stuff out. And so I'm not sure that that really operates as a taking when you can have a self-help remedy available, depending on what you have as far as statutory protections for the lessee. Like, you know, you can't generally just go and do a self-help lockout on a uh, on a residential lessee, but you can on a commercial. So on the commercial side, if you can do that, just because you can't proceed to a judicial remedy, do you really have a, does not having that judicial remedy really constitute any sort of taking? I don't really see that on some angles of this. Well, you know, that's exactly the, the situation, right? I think it's about to, moratorium is about to expire. Virginia court issued the order just saying no risk of eviction, no risk of uh, unlawful, you know, no unlawful detainer actions, no risk will issue. That just means you, you may have the right at some point, you know, you have an un, unresolved judgment. You know, so that we're not taking anything away from you. I think it's just going to be fascinating to see how this all plays out. I mean, it's just such such an unprecedented time. But, Rob, I have a really pressing question for you um, to just mm-hmm. kind of switch gears a little bit. So you're a, you're from Hawaii or have spent a good deal of time there from what I understand, right? I've never been to up Hawaii. Until lately. <laughs> up until lately. Up until I've a, never been to Hawaii. We but We have a 14-day inbound uh, quarantine. Oh, you know, boy. If you want to travel to Hawaii now, you may, but you're going to sit you're in You're going to have to sit around for a minute. Days. Well, the reason— <laughs> so, the, I'm sorry. Go on. No. my There's one thing that you Hawaiians do right, and it's that you eat a lot of spam. And i gotta, I got to confess something that I think a lot of mainlanders don't like to confess, and that is that I love spam. I think spam is a delicacy. Oh. It's amazing. I love it. And I, so my question for you is, do you like spam? And if so, what's your favorite way to prepare spam? Oh, um, you know, I have in the can, no, no pun intended, you know, in the, in the figurative <laughs> uh, can, um, a, a, a review of various, my own review of various um, spam flavors. Um, which I is the best. think I just died now, and went you know, to heaven. Is this available for public yeah. consumption? I would like to see this review of various spam I'm flavors. I'm editing it now. Oh, so, I can't wait to see it. <laughs> you know, because, you know, the first thing, now I know you all, when, when, when we all first went into lockdown, everybody went out and grabbed toilet paper and handy wipes and all sorts of things. <laughs> but you know what got run out on the shelves in Hawaii first? Spam. It was spam. spam was hard uh, to find and, here, and too. You, Yes, I, you know, same in California where I am. That's you know, I went to. Oh man, all they got is. I'm sorry, all they had was a low sodium, and I'm sorry that no, one. You that's know, wrong. Uh, uh, that's uh, just uh, not. It's got to be salty. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, to answer your question directly, do I like spam? Yes. What is my favorite? Yes. Um, easy question on that one because I have a clear favorite, and that is. The either the hot or the Tabasco version. Um, I haven't had that. Originally, when they came, oh, originally when they came out with this, it was for primarily the market in Guam, because there's a specialty if you're ever on the island of Guam. There's a specialty where they make fried rice, you know, <sighs> your day old rice or whatever it is, and apparently they they soak their you know spam in Tabasco sauce. Oh. Cut that up into it and make this this thing, and so eventually spam. The company seized on that, and they prepackaged the spam 
they got together with Tabasco brands out of Louisiana, and they produced a Tabasco branded Spam. I'm in. I'm in. Like ambrosia. It's great. If you like spam a little, or if you love Tabasco, which I do, this is perfect. Now, eventually, I think spam decided to cut Tabasco out of the deal because you go to the store now, and if you can find it, it's not Tabasco (laughs) branded spam. It's called like hot sauce spam. Right. Oh no! It's still pretty good. It is now, still pretty good. Rob, do you just pop open a can and eat it, or do you fry it? Do you bake it? What do you? How do you? What do you? How do you eat your spam? Um, you know, uh, you can. I can, but my my preferred way is to take it out, slice it up, and into uh, not into strips, but into you know pretty thick slices. Uh, put it in a cast iron skillet and put yes. it under the broiler for about three minutes. That sounds delightful. And, and you know, get the get the fat and sugar or whatever god awful thing is in it. It's it's delightful. Whatever it is, caramelized. Yeah. Do, do so we have a slurp? Do we have a slurp a sound effect here? I'm, I don't think we do. <laughs> no, I man, we're not, you, and we're not gonna. Rob, I have something in my bag that I just discovered recently, and it is a spam single. It's like a little pouch with like a single slice what? of spam. And I, I like, if you ever are in my car and you're hungry, I can promise you that I have a spam single and some almonds. Oh, We're never going to starve oh my in my God. car. Wait, wait. So is, is, is starting to like spam if you're non-Hawaiian now, cultural appropriation? Is that is uh, it okay? Are you kidding? Hey, one of my favorite party tricks is somebody says, hey, you get invited to someone's house and they say, can you bring a side? And I always say, sure, I can. And I bring a dip. And then everybody just goes on and on about how, oh, that dip is so delicious. What's in it? You've got to give me a recipe. And then after it's all gone, I said, psych, everybody just had a big bowl of spam. And they act like they're all grossed out. But I'm just educating them on the benefits of this wonderful a, culinary delight. It's a delicacy. It is a delicacy. I have never seen him make a spam no, dip. You know, we have more in common than we realize. See? We're, across the, we're reaching across the aisle right now. Yeah. You know, bipartisan support for spam. Well, no, you know, the, the, it, it's a joke, but but at the same time, it's true. Hawaii, I think, has the largest per capita consumption of spam, if if not in the nation, in the world. Um, uh, we love that stuff. I grew up eating it. It's a holdover from probably World War II, and and my mother, who grew up on a sugar plantation. As one of the workers of her family, you know, it was the once a once a week they would get some kind of protein, um, and, and it was a can of spam that they would use for the dinner Sunday dinner and cut it up and and that was a super treat and so somehow that stuck I think in our collective consciousness uh, in the 50th state <laughs> you know even though these days the uh, Actually, having to, to eat that is, is probably not high on a lot of lists. It's still sort of the comfort food and, and um, for I, a lot of us. I think this is the perfect note to wind up this episode of our podcast. Rob Thomas, thank you for joining us. Spam, it's delicious. You can also have it as Spam Musubi. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on the Pendulum Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to Rob Thomas, you can get him at Inverse Condemnation. You can join Relo Kristen at Relo Kristen, at Right of Way Ross, at Right of Way Dave. See you, and thank you for joining us.